Good morning, Freedom Church. Good morning. It is such a privilege and an honor to be here. And I'm not just saying that. It is easy to say those sorts of words, but it is. It's a real privilege and honor to be with you. Um, I'm very, very grateful for your hospitality, both myself and my wife. Joe sat there. Um, as many, I know many of your faces. I don't know all of your faces. I look forward to getting to know some of those faces. It's a weird way of saying it. I'm getting to, looking forward to getting to know some of you a little bit more later on. But um, it, it is really wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for your hospitality. And I bring greetings then from Matthew Henry Church. We're thankful to you and we're thankful for you. Let me just break that down a little bit. We're thankful to you for lending us Keith this morning. I understand his preach. We're doing something of a pulpit swap. We didn't meet halfway to exchange batons. But I do want to honor Keith. We, we do love Keith. I love Keith. I've only known him for six or so months now. But he, he is such a gift of God to this city. And I just praise God. For, I thank God for him. So I just want to honor him here. We're also thankful for you, for your faithfulness to Christ in the center of the city, in city center mission. It is a real wonder, and it's a real privilege, so thank you so much. In fact, I've been listening to several of your sermons over the last few weeks uh, in preparation for this, and, and they're all absolutely fantastic. So to the preachers, well done. It's some amazing work and some amazing toil that you're doing in tarrying in the Word. It's just fantastic. Do keep us in your prayers as Matthew Henry Church. We're in a period of transition. We've got a 30th year anniversary since being planted into Blaken. And the big questions as any anniversary comes around, who are we? Where are we going? What are we doing? There is a name change for Matthew Henry Evangelical Church coming up. We'll soon no longer be Matthew Henry Evangelical Church, but we'll then become Blaken Community Church. So in this period of transition, do keep us in your prayers. On the note of which, can I just pray? I know I've already been prayed for, but can I just pray again as we begin? Is that okay? Lord, we love you. We love you, Lord. Lord, we love you. Holy Spirit, I am completely dependent on you here. Please, Lord, would you honor your word? Would you be faithful to your promises? And one of those, Lord, is that you are faithful to your word to proclaim it. Be faithful to your word this morning. Father, I know that in all things you want to exalt your son. So, Father, fulfill that promise also. Would you put him on display this morning through my flabby lips, through my fallible tongue? Would you put him on display for people to see this morning? Holy Spirit, exalt him this morning. Put him on display. Make the son look beautiful through what I've got to say this morning. And Holy Spirit, just be with us, pressing that into our hearts, pressing that into our souls and our spirits and our minds, that we might love you more, rejoice in you more deeply, and Lord, leave this place different than when we arrived. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. Amen. So would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5, please? 2 Corinthians 5, and our, uh, my remit this morning is verses 11 to 15. So if you would just turn with me, I'll give you about 10 or so seconds to get there. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 to 15. Are we all there? Okay, so I'm going to read out those verses now. I've got, I'll naturally have a different translation to you. That, that might be fine, so just keep along and follow along. Verse 11, chapter 5. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade others. 
For we ourselves are well known to God, and I hope that we are also well known to your consciences. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast in outward appearance and not in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ urges us on, because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. Amen? Now, this isn't going to be a formal expository sermon. The purpose of this sermon, that is, it's a first in a series on the cross, I understand, that you will be going into over the next month or so. So this isn't going to be a formal expository sermon on this passage, but it is right and it is good that we just quickly orientate ourselves here within this passage. My wife and I were sat in town in McDonald's this morning, um, and Joe asked, what are you looking at this morning? What were you preaching from? And I read out this passage. It's actually, if we had just stuck to the, the last two verses there, verses 14 and 15, it might have been a little bit easier. But 2 Corinthians is a wonderful text. But it is Paul at his most political, his most cunning, his most, uh, most dynamic, his most Paul-like self as well. He expresses so much of his personality in this book and indeed in these verses. So it's right that we just very quickly orientate ourselves. Is that okay? Yeah? We awake? Good. So Paul has had a a long, by this point, a long and complex relationship with the Corinthians by this point. And we're not given the full record of that long and complex relationship within the New Testament canon, but we are given glimpses at it. So Paul first arrives in Corinth at the end of his second missionary journey. And you can read about his arrival in Corinth in Acts 18 to Acts 19. He's eventually joined by Silas and Timothy, and Luke in Acts gives us a brief glimpse at what he's up to, what he was doing in that city. Acts 18, verse 5, and a little bit of verse 8, Paul was occupied with proclaiming the word, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul became believers. He's doing gospel ministries, doing gospel work. And then Acts 18, verse 11, he stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. That's a long time to be dedicated to a particular people, a particular congregation. A year and, 18, a year and a half. But he's there tarrying in the word, tarrying with them. After Paul eventually leaves, and you can read about that in Acts 19, Paul kept in touch with them. But he did so, even though we've only got two, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, we know for a fact that he did so at least twice, more than twice, at least three times. And we don't have the full record of Paul's correspondence with the Corinthians by the providence of God. But we are, again, given glimpses. And how do we know this? Well, at least, we know at least he wrote to them once before 1 Corinthians, because in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter, past tense, not to associate with sexually immoral persons. So that's once before 1 Corinthians. And then you have 1 Corinthians itself, And on the surface, it might seem like 2 Corinthians is the next letter in the chain. And that might well be the case. We don't know all the details. But there is possibly also a letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. How do we know that? Well, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, this is chapter 2, verse 4, I wrote to you out of much distress and anguish of heart and with many tears. So seeming, that doesn't really, I mean, it might be, it might be that that's 1 Corinthians, but it doesn't really describe 1 Corinthians that well. 1 Corinthians is a much more placid, irenic tone to it. 
So it might be that there is another one between 1 and 2 Corinthians, which would mean that there are four letters in total, only, and we only have two of them. But that's not too important. Let me explain why I am giving these details and why that is important. Because it is essential to understanding the book of 2 Corinthians, yes, but also specifically the passage that we have in front of us. So let me explain this. We find out in 2 Corinthians that the Corinthians have cooled to Paul, that they've cooled to him, that they don't like him as much. Some of them don't like him as much anymore. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 11 to 13. We have spoken frankly to Corinthians. Our heart is wide open to you. There is no restriction in our affections, but only in yours. In return, I speak as to children. Open wide your hearts to us also. Do you see this? You see this? The Corinthians have called to Paul sometime between 1 and 2 Corinthians. Now, why have they called to Paul? Why is that the case? Because he had to bring a letter of painful discipline. And we heard a little bit of that before. But in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 8, Paul says, For even if I made you sorry with that letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that I grieved you with that letter, though only briefly. So the Corinthians have called to Paul because he had to bring a strict discipline. And isn't that the case when you bring a rebuke in a godly fashion that, that you, you, might well get, you might well be the target of some of their uh, disdain, some of their bitterness. And that is exactly what's happened. That's exactly what's happened. And as a result, as a result of them cooling to him, some have taken an active dislike to him. Chapter 1 in 2 Corinthians, they accuse him of vacillating. That's what he records. They've accused him of vacillating, of being, yes, yes, no, no, I'll say I'll come, and then he doesn't come. That's not the case, but that's what they're thinking. And in chapter 10, verse 8, we find out that they've accused him of boasting. Chapter 10, verse 10, they've accused him of being weak. Chapter 12, verse 16, they've accused him of being crafty and deceptive. And some within the Corinthian church have even now seized on that discontent, on that cooling towards Paul, to their own ends. And Paul rather sarcastically calls them the super apostles. The super apostles, who by Paul's description in chapter 11, they're very eloquent. And Paul himself admits that when I come to you, I don't speak with words of much wisdom and eloquence, much not, well, not worldly wisdom, but not with much eloquence and not much with fine crafting, he himself recognizes that he's a little bit underwhelming in person, but his letters are full of depth and, and meat. So these super apostles set themselves up against Paul, and they're very eloquent, and they've led some within the Corinthian church astray. Is this making sense? Yeah? Good. So when we return to our passage in chapter 5, verses 11 to 15, we now find that it begins to make a little bit more sense with this background. Chap verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord... We try to persuade others. So what was Paul saying? He's saying, look, we're not doing this for selfish, deceptive reasons. We're doing this because of the fear of the Lord. We're doing this because God owns us and because we know that Christ is coming and we are compelled to do this work. We're not doing it for crafty reasons. I'm not doing it for self-gain. I'm doing it because I know God is coming and I want to make you ready. Yeah? Verse, I think this is verse 11 still. But we ourselves are well known to God. And I hope that we are also well known to your consciences. That is to say, look, we are, we're well known to God. We're God's ambassadors here. But come on, it's me you're talking to. This is Paul. We, you know me. We tarry together for 18 months. This is me. I should be well known to you by now. Verse 12 and 13. We're not commending ourselves to you again. 
but giving you an opportunity to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast in outward appearance and not in the heart. For if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. So in other words, no, we're not eloquent. No, we're not strong. We're not, I'm not like those super apostles, but I do belong to Jesus. And that is something to boast about. You see this? You see how the background makes sense of these first few verses in our passage? Yeah? Yeah? Good. <laughs> Come on. Yeah? Amen? Right. So God willing then, that's helped us find our footing here in 2 Corinthians 5. But our remit, as I just said before, isn't to examine this in an expository fashion. It isn't for me to sit, stand here and provide some sort of formal exegesis of this text. Our remit, or rather your remit as you begin this series, is to explore the significance of the cross using 2 Corinthians 5. That's our remit, yeah? That's what we're here for. So with this in mind, our gaze naturally then falls to verses 14 to 15. For the love of Christ urges us on, because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a beautiful passage? What a treasure chest. And we could unpack from this chest a plethora of riches. We could look at how the cross of Christ was a display of that selfless love of God in Christ. We could point out that there is an allusion here to Christ, the second Adam. It's kind of similar to Romans 5, how all died in Adam, now all live in Christ. We could explore the significance and the meaning of what Paul's saying there when he says died for all, that Christ died for all, the cosmic world's significance and scope. Also there, the challenge which would take months to unpack, the challenge to die to our old selves. That is a chestnut right there. However, there is something else here. And, and, and in this, I want to be crisp and I want to be clear and I want to be cogent and I want to be single-minded in this, in my pursuit, in my exploration of one particular thing. One thing that would be very easy for us to pass over. One thing I believe... Freedom Church, that God would have me proclaim to you this morning. And one thing I'd suggest that he wants you as a church to exalt and to exalt in. It is, if you will, like the top button on it. I haven't fastened my top button in the shirt, but it is a bit like that top button in the shirt. You need to do that up or else the whole shirt doesn't really work for you. You can't fasten it up very easily and sometimes you go wrong completely. We need to fasten that top button And I believe God wants you to be observant to this. And what is this little thing? What is this one thing? It's just two words. Verse 15. And he died for all, so that. Now in some translations it says just one word, that. The Greek there is hina, that, so that. Because of this, so that. He died for all, so that. Why? Why did he die? What was the point? What was it all about? Now, don't confuse me. We're told many times who he died for. We're told many times who he died for. Romans 6 verse 5, Christ died for the ungodly. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, Christ died for our sins. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 10, Christ died for us. But in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15, Paul has already answered the who question. And he died for all, but look. Now he's moving into why territory. You see that? 
Now he's moving into why territory. And he died for all so that. This is the pin drop moment, if I wasn't shouting. (laughs) When we sit up straight and we take notice. When we refuse to let go until we command a blessing. Why? And he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him. You see this? He died for all so that we might live for him, so that we might exalt him, so that we might make much of him, so that we might glorify him, treasure him, honor him, and proclaim his fame. In case you think I'm overreaching here and I'm reading something into this text that's not there, I want you all now to turn very quickly to Romans 14. Because Romans 14, there's a parallel passage, a sister passage to what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 5. Romans 14, verses 7 to 9, he makes it even clearer. We do not live, this is verse 7, Romans 14, we do not live to ourselves and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, you see this? For to this end, Christ died and lived again. So that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Amen? Amen. So that. So I'm not reading a single thing into this text. I'm only going from what Paul is saying, and Paul repeats it elsewhere, so important it is. It is right, brothers and sisters, listen. It is right that we rejoice. I Don't hear me as saying anything different. It is right that we rejoice in the cross as the site of our salvation. It is good and it is godly to delight in its many benefits, but in order to do so, and I believe this is central, in order to do so well, in order to do so well, We must first understand this. The cross of Christ is not man-centered. It is Christ-centered. Amen? The cross of Christ is not man-centered. It is Christ-centered. So, I turn to this all the time when I teach. So, for those in the room who who experience my teaching regularly often, I apologize. In fact, I don't apologize really because I don't really get sick of saying it, not at all. <laughs> Isaiah 52, verse 12. See, my, I've said this before, so again, I apologize to Emma and others in the room who sit under my teaching relatively frequently. But if there was like an office in heaven in which the Father sat and did his business, this would be one of those motivational posters on the wall. This is kind of like God's modus operandi, this is his big deal. This is the this single verse echoes not just throughout the scriptures but throughout all of eternity it is the theme of all heaven and earth see my servant shall prosper he shall be exalted and lifted up and he shall be made very high amen the father's aim in all things is to glorify the son the father's aim in all things as a priority before anything else, before anyone else, is to glorify the Son, who in turn seeks to glorify and exalt his Father with the Spirit binding them together and helping us to do so. 
There is one triune, cohesive picture here, and it is the Father's aim to make the Son look beautiful. So the cross is no exception. No exception. It is Christ-centered, it is Christ-focused, and it is Christ-exalting. And there is a thread here that I want us to be attentive to. And it runs throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And it helps explain this eternal theme. And it also helps us explain and understand what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians. Because I, I, as I will argue, it's exactly what Paul has in mind in 2 Corinthians. So turn with me to Isaiah 30, verse 1. A great book, by the way. Great that Was it the Leaders Conference or one conference that's studying through Isaiah? Um, yeah, it's kind of described as Jesus' gospel. It's the, it's the text that he, I think I might be wrong in saying this, it's the text that he quotes from the most. At the very least, it's one of those texts that he quotes from among the most. It's something that he constantly has on his mind, on his lips. So Isaiah 30, verse 1. O rebellious children, says the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, who make an alliance but against my will, adding sin to sin. This is where we find the true nature of sin here, ladies and gentlemen. It is not sickness, or not just sickness. It is not disease. It is not victimhood. It is rebellion. It is rebellion against the true king. In Romans 1.30, Paul even describes sin or sinners as God-haters. You can take that up with Paul. God haters. Sin is rebellion against the true king. In fact, it's this, the notion of rebellion against the true king is one of the central themes in um, Pullman's Dark Materials. I don't know how many of you have read that, which has many literary qualities, but insofar as its theological content is concerned, Pullman himself, it, it, the, the large part of the plot revolves, against a, uh, revolves around a rebellion against heaven and a rebellion against God. And Pullman himself has said, if there is a God, and he is as the Christians describe him, then he deserves to be put down and rebelled against. Sobering. But that is our nature outside of Christ. That is our nature under our first head, Adam. Men, that is you. Women, that is you also through Eve. This is our nature, to rebel against the true king. Turn 10 chapters to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 8. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So we've learned that sin is rebellion against the true king. But here we learn this rebellion, it cannot and it will not last. We are not God. God is God and we are not. And unless God does something, this isn't going to end well. He will blow upon the people and they will be utterly destroyed for our God is an avenging fire. This is his justice promised but it is also our nature in Adam, and again it is inevitable. This rebellion cannot and will not last. But read on. Verse 9. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good tidings, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good tidings, lift it up. Do not fear. 
Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. So the true king is coming and he is going to put an end to this rebellion. And what, by the way, is the first thing that Jesus proclaims in his earthly ministry? What's the first recorded saying of Jesus in his earthly ministry? See, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, turn away from your rebellion, for the true kingdom is here. He's going to set things right. Herald of good tidings. He's going to set things right. And how is he going to do this? How is the true king going to put down the rebellion and make all things new? Well, we read about that, of course, in one of the best passages in all of Scripture, Isaiah 53. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He shall bear their iniquities. The true king, when he comes, he comes not with fire and with fury, but with a costly forgiveness. I'm going to say that again. The true king, when he, bear in mind, it was within his rights to consume rebel sinners. It is within his rights to consume them and destroy them. Why? Because the judge of all heaven and earth does right. But what does he do? He comes not with fire and fury, but with costly forgiveness, sending his own son to die for us, taking on our iniquity. As Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 5, he became sin so that we might become his righteousness. And what does Jesus say in Mark 10, 45? I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And what does he say on the cross when being killed? Which is, of course, is the ultimate display of our rebellion towards God. When we kill the Son of God, what does he say? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And note, fellow rebels, what did we do to him? What did we do to the Son of Glory? What did we do? We put a thorn of crowns on it in mockery. We put a thorn of, when it, when it should have been a di- filled with diadems and crowns and jewels as is only right for the Son of God. What do we do to him? We thrust a crown of thorns and pierce his scalp. And what did we do to him, brothers and sisters? What did we do? Well, we put up a sign of mockery. King of the Jews. In mockery, not in affirmation or confession, but in mockery. And yet he says, Father, forgive them. Our God is good, and he is kind, and he is merciful beyond measure. But Isaiah 53 goes on. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered among the transgressors. So the true king conquers the rebellion. He conquers Satan's sin, death, and hell, and he does all that by giving up his own life. But then he is vindicated. Acts 2. But God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. But know something else here. Know something, which of course I could spend an hour just on that, or many, many hours. But notice something else, because what it says is, he shall divide the spoil with the strong. The true king comes, he conquers the rebellion, he conquers Satan's sin, death, and hell, and he has promised the spoils of war. He has promised his reward. And here's the question. 
what are these spoils? What is this reward? What is he promised as a reward, as a recompense for his sufferings? Isaiah 62, verses 11 to 12. Say to daughter Zion, see, your salvation comes. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. They shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. Do you see this? Do you see this? It is not just that Christ comes as the true king and conquers Satan, sin, death, and hell, puts an end to the rebellion, and is vindicated in life and resurrection power, but it is also in being promised the spoils for his sufferings, he regards us as his reward. You see this? We are his recompense. We are his portion. We are the spoils of his victory. We decorate his glory. We ornament his majesty. Now, here's a question. How do we know that this, that this dynamic, that this image was in Paul's mind in 2 Corinthians 5? How do I know that? 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads in every place the fragrance that comes from knowing him. And what's going on there? Note what, that mean, what the meaning of that image is. The meaning of that image, it's like, again, like the true king has come and he leads a triumphal procession and behind him is his reward, his people, his spoils, his portion, his delight, his crown, his joy, and they're following him. And now there is a fragrance about us that makes him known. Amen? So this is in Paul's mind. And it's because of that, he says, he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him. Therefore, he says in Romans 14, verse 9, for to this end Christ died and lived again, so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. And this is why he says in Philippians 2, that the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And there is the costly forgiveness, but note what happens next. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't this good? Isn't this good? Amen. Once again, it is godly to delight in the benefits of the cross. I'm not suggesting anything else. But to do so, and to do so well as you embark on the series of the next few months, weeks, months, weeks, I assume, on the cross in your run-up to Easter, we must fasten the top button. The cross of Christ is not man-centered, it is Christ-centered. And the Father would have it and have us understand it no other way. Do you see that? Do you see the heart of the Father to exalt his Son on the cross? The cross was not 
the hole puncher for your ticket to heaven. And Christ is no conductor. He is the Lord of all glory. On the cross, he was exalted and magnified. Do you understand what I'm saying there? Do you understand? Because we have to maintain a careful balance here. And I have to maintain a careful balance. Because on the one hand, on the one hand, I have to say, of course, we rejoice in the amazing grace shown us on the cross. But the danger here in all these things is that I give you a because theology. What do I mean by that? A because theology. That you should love this because it benefits you. You see that? You hear that? There's the man-centeredness coming out. You should love this, brothers and sisters, because look at how good it is for you. And it is good for you. And may we rejoice for all eternity in the cross. But the top button has to be fastened or else we can't rejoice in amazing grace as amazing. Because what does... I'm kind of going off script here, but Ephesians 1. Let me just read out Ephesians 1 just one second. There's a portion of Ephesians 1 that is just gorgeous. Ephesians 1 verse 11, in Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we who were the first to set our hope on Christ might live for the praise of his glory. Okay, so you've got that first right there. And again, it's the for him thing, right? We live for his glory. But verse 11 at the beginning there, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. Whose inheritance is that? Do you have it naturally? No. Whose inheritance is it? Whose reward are you enjoying? Whose spoils are you partaking in? Not yours. Christ's. He is the mind-blowing thing. That Christ came to conquer the rebellion. He came to conquer Satan, sin, death, and hell. And we were spitting at him. We were mocking him. We were rejoicing in his pain and his misery. And what is his reward but to say to us, I am satisfied in you. And I will now give you all that the Father gives me. That should be mind-blowing to us. Is it mind-blowing? It's mind-blowing. So that is one good reason why this is a joyous truth. And again, I have to maintain that careful. I don't want to give you a because theology, but that is one good reason to delight in this this morning. It is also good, of course, because you delight in him. As we were singing this morning, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longs for you. He is our delight and our portion. And if I am giving you, if you are truly found in him this morning, and by God's grace I am preaching this rightly by his spirit, and you are hearing, as I hope you are, a Christ-exalting message, then let's delight in it. Let's delight in it. It is good for its own sake. But also I will say this. In the run-up to mission, as you go to do, as you prepare to do missions in in, in the city center and just in your own lives. I will also say that this truth transforms mission. It completely changes it because it stops being about this man-centered, it's all about those for whom you are reaching primarily, because of course it is to a certain extent, but is it for them primarily? Or is it, uh, let me tell a story, I'm kind of going off script, is that okay? Have, you, have any of you heard of the Moravian missions before? The origin of the Moravian missions? Elizabeth, you have. There's a wonderful story of how it started, and I can't remember exactly which century. I believe it's 17th century in which this happened. It might have been earlier. I apologize. The, origin, the originators of the Moravian missions, the story goes that they heard about the slavery in the colonies, 
And knowing that those people who were being sold, not only was it an evil, but also that they would never hear the gospel, that Christ was not being proclaimed to them by their evil, ungodly taskmasters. They said, what do we do? What can we do? We can't go there and do it. It would be seditious. So what do we do? They sold themselves into slavery, three of them, I believe. They sold themselves into slavery so that they might preach to those on the boat and on the plantations. And as the boat rolled away after having been sold into slavery, their families weeping, probably not completely comprehending what exactly is going on. And as the boat rolled away, the last thing they heard from them was the lamb must receive the reward for his sufferings. The lamb must receive the reward for his sufferings. That is mission. The lamb must receive the reward for his sufferings. And I want to tell you why that's good. Because one, it's all about Jesus. And the sheep will hear his voice. So chill out a little. And secondly, secondly, it changes it round such that you don't have to be afraid You can be free to proclaim this message. You can be free to proclaim this Jesus who wants himself to be known and wants to receive the reward for his sufferings more than you ever could. And he is faithful to his word to proclaim it. So be free. Amen? If you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian this morning, let me put it this way. This is the Jesus you need to know. This is the Jesus that actually exists. He's not some wimp. He doesn't require your approval. He stands as the Lion of Judah. He stands as the man you need to know. And he will not accept your terms. But let me say this. This is what he suffered for you. This is what he endured for you. That even though it is rebellion, as we've described as rebellion, it is rebellion. Nevertheless, Father, forgive them. So come to him. If this is any way prodded, I don't know who's in the room. So if there is anyone like that, if it has prodded you, come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Freedom Church, fasten the top button as you move throughout March. Let it be there as a priority. Let it be there as a matter of first priority. There's a quote here from, again, we were sat in McDonald's this morning, and we were looking at, and I had this weird moment where I was like, oh my gosh, there's a perfect Spurgeon quote, which I just need to use. And so here I was just desperately searching my home computer on the database, trying to find, oh my gosh, where did I leave it? Uh, let me find it. I eventually did find it, and it is perfect. Spurgeon said this, if Christ be glorious, it is all the heaven I ask for. If he shall be king of kings and lord of lords, let me be nothing. If he shall but reign and every tongue call him blessed, it shall be bliss to me to know it. And if I may be, if I may be but one of the withered roses which lie in the path of his triumph, it shall be my paradise. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and might and honor and glory and blessing.
for him and because for him, for you. Amen.